You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. I want to start by wishing a happy Father's Day to all of the men who have had a fathering influence of all different kinds. There are many ways that men can be fathers, just as there are many ways that women can be mothers. And we are grateful for every influence of every man uh, that has ever been made in our lives, all of us. I hope that is true. And as a gift to the fathers today on Father's Day, I have something for you. I have a one-verse sermon. That one verse is Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Just one verse this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. I've entitled the sermon, according to this text, The Joyful Power of Christian Fellowship. The Joyful Power of Christian Fellowship. As we have such a great opportunity this morning to hear from the Apostle Paul and to get a, an even deeper sense of the way that he viewed the local church and how that may help us to view the local church as well. On February 7, 1984, Bruce McCandless II, a NASA astronaut, uh, did something shocking and courageous and foolish. He performed what was the first untethered spacewalk in history. It was only the 10th um, journey of the space uh, program, and Bruce McCandless made the decision that he would leave this Challenger space shuttle and venture out without a tether, and he went as far as 302 feet in just his manned maneuvering unit. It was a shocking moment. You should look online later and see the picture of him floating out in space away from the shuttle. And it reminded me as I saw that picture of what it's like for many of us in our relationship to the church. Because if you think about uh, that picture and you think about the space shuttle as the body of believers to which we belong, we can all see times in our lives when we are closer or further away. And so it raises a question for us in a spiritual way as Christians of where is the line? There is a line somewhere between courage and exploration and foolishness and danger. In our family, we often talk about at key moments something called the circle of safety. When a story comes up and we see someone who, is, who has ventured outside of the circle of safety, that could be in a number of different ways, either leaving the, the values that you have been raised with to help protect you and guard you and care for you and to contribute to your joy and happiness in life. It could be getting beyond certain social norms or, or values in society that are there for the same purpose. It could be leaving a circle of safety by making poor choices, uh, following the wrong crowd. All of those things that faithful parents talk about, we try to talk about those and frame them in terms of the circle of safety. And the reminder time and time again is don't leave the circle of safety. Because once you get outside the circle of safety, you realize that this world is dark, it's hard. It is unrelenting, it's cold, it's dangerous. And once you're outside the circle of safety, it is very difficult. It sometimes seems impossible 
to come back again. You probably know people like this. Uh, maybe you have been in moments of your life outside that circle of safety, and by God's grace, you, you have come back again uh, among those who love you and care for you, the place where you belong. But it raises that question again. As we think about the local church and our relationship to it, what the Apostle Paul tells us in just this simple single verse is, I believe, immensely helpful to us as we think about what it means to belong to a local church. Because all of us will have a tendency at one point or another to drift, to drift in a kind of untethered fashion from from the shuttle which Christ has given us, the local church, and we need to be careful because there is a line. And when we cross the line, we leave the circle of safety, but it's not always clear where that line is. Is it 50 feet? Is it 100 feet? Is it like Bruce McCandless II, 302 feet, and then he was able to come back again? And again, we want to take seriously what it means to be Christians and our relationship to the local church by considering these words this morning. This one verse can help us move, which is our desire as a church, to move closer together, not drifting apart. Because Paul will tell us here in this verse about the unique relationship that we have as believers to one another in this thing called the local church. In this, this thing, the local church that we, we care so much about and we need uh, every reminder that we can get as to how beautiful and important and serious it is to be faithful to the local church and to receive her faithfulness to us. So we're going to consider this in just three key points about our fellowship. Keeping in the context of this letter, which we have been in the series that we're preaching called Connoisseurs of Happiness, the important role of joy in the Christian life, and in particular, in the local church of believers, even our local church, Paramount Church, to which many of us belong, others are visiting. Here's the first truth that we see in what Paul says in verse 1, just breaking it down sort of phrase by phrase as we tend to do with just one verse. The first truth is this, that our fellowship brings us, or maybe we could say fuels in us, hearts of love. And that's an important attribute or quality or experience for us to have in the local church because the local church is driven by love. We're reminded that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, so even in Jesus' relationship to the church, at the very center is love. Uh, that's, that's different than what can sometimes be our experience, and our experience goes up and down. Sometimes our experience in the local church feels more like obligation than love. It feels more like something I, I have to do rather than something that I want to do. But nevertheless, when that's our experience, we need this reminder. I need this reminder that it's not about obligation. It's not about something I have to do. It's about something that we, when thinking rightly, desire to do. It has everything to do with the love in our hearts. Listen to what he says in the first part of verse 1. He says, therefore, and you'll remember hopefully from recent weeks, the way Paul has been talking about joy in the Christian life and how this is a community project. He routinely refers to people in the church as brothers and sisters, as he does here. He says, therefore, on the heels of all of that, which we heard last Sunday, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. 
Now these, uh, what I, I really like about preaching maybe just one verse is it gives us a little more time to slow down, especially a, a verse like this, because here are some words that if I'm, I'm really good in my Bible reading of just whoop, scanning right over them. They are super familiar. I, yep, I get it. And I move on, but I miss, I miss a lot of the treasure. I miss a lot of the richness that I hope we can pull out today by slowing down. Because listen to these words. These are not words to scan right over. They have meaning, they are important, they are intentional, they are inspired. Whom I love and long for. This is a snapshot of the way the Apostle Paul thought about the local church. It's a snapshot of the way that he thinks about other Christians. His relationship, his connection to other Christians in a local church is characterized by at least, there's other things too, right? But at least, love and longing. Now, I think that we need more of Paul's full and powerful love for the church in our church. In every church, it's not just about our church, every church needs more of this. His love was full, we see here, of family identity. He says again, he says this all the time, therefore, my brothers or my brothers and sisters. He's always using this familial language. And his familial love moved his heart with force. That's, that's what it means when it says, whom I love and long for. The word that he uses for long for is, is simply the word that would mean a deep longing, a yearning. Think about the things in your life that you, you yearn for. Some of them are really simple, um, like the everyday things. Sometimes you really yearn for dinner or you yearn for some time with someone, a, a child or brother or sister or someone that you haven't seen in a while. Sometimes you, you yearn for a, a vacation on the beach and your heart goes out. You see a picture of the beach and you just yearn to be there. You, you think about and refresh your memory of what it's like to be there and you're yearning for it. That's what Paul thinks about his church. He yearns for the church. He has this love for the church. And therefore, it has a kind of propulsion in his life that drives him toward the church. He's moving in to other believers rather than further away. Not a lot unlike this kind of analogy that I'm using this morning of Bruce McCandless, the astronaut who did the untethered spacewalk. He had his, his um, manned maneuvering unit on, which was his only way. It's his only way to return to the space shuttle. That, that's what's dangerous. You know what I mean by untethered? There's typically a rope that connects him to the shuttle. And in this case, he's unhinged the rope. So all he's left with is what he has on himself. And this unit is like two big aluminum tanks down his back that's all patched into the rest of his system. And on there are 24 boosters. And he has control so that he can use those tanks and the fuel that's there to boost himself back. He can propel himself some different places, but obviously you can feel it. You know, there's like a huge risk. What if, 
What if the fuse goes out? What if the buzzer doesn't work? He can't, he can't get back. And then he keeps on floating and floating. It's a helpful kind of analogy because when you think about the Apostle Paul and you relate it in this way, you think, well, you could think about those two aluminum tanks as being the, the love that he has in his heart or whatever it is you have in your heart with respect to your local church, whatever beliefs and desires you have about that. Because whatever they are, they will cause you to be propelled one direction or the other. The boosters will send you closer to the church or send you further away from the church. And therefore, it's important for us to think carefully about what's in each of our hearts with respect to the body of Christ. You can get some indication of this because it's hard to know what's in our hearts, right? Only God truly knows that. He gives us by grace a, a sense of that. We don't know our hearts fully. But with God's help through his word, we can understand something of it. And to get a sense, if it's a little confusing to you, you, you could even begin by thinking about the language. Paul uses this language over and over again of brothers and sisters. So, so here would be a question you could ask yourself. What language is most meaningful to me in my reference to my church or to other Christians? How do you talk about other Christians? Brothers and sisters is, is somewhat of a common one. It's obviously common to Paul, but times change, language changes we talk about people in different ways now. Some people here would call each other fam. Others would say, my guy, bro, sis, my dear. Maybe even drawing from the Bible in the New Testament, beloved, that kind of language. But here's the question is, how do you talk about the church how do you think? This has always been a struggle for me because I, maybe, maybe you feel it too, I have a hard time finding a place that really matches me. You know, I've spent, I did, you know, spent some ministry time in the South and I never, really, I never really got or, you know, landed with, you know, that I would get called like, like Brother Wit. And that was kind of, that's not really me. That's a little more country than, than I am, you know. Um, so I've always had a hard time getting my, my mind and heart around that, but I know that I need to. And it could be that the first way, the first place to start would be adopting a little more of Paul's language, at least the sentiment, the, the meaning of it. If you want to say fam, my guy, whatever, it, it, means, it means brothers and sisters. And this is important because it has something to do with the force of the language that you use when thinking or referring to other believers. It has something to do with the propulsive power of the, of the way you feel about the church. It says something about the way you feel about your church. What is your longing in reference to your church? Is it a longing that moves you away, untethered perhaps, or is it a longing that brings you near? Thoughts about the church are wonderful. We should think about those. But there's something deeper. Prayers about the church are wonderful. 
But there is even then something deeper. What's underneath those thoughts? What's underneath those prayers? What's underneath them is longing. And so there's a key question. What is your longing in reference to the church? Look at Paul's, compare yours to his, and think about how we can move in this direction. He's obviously given to us, and his words are here by inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit for us to, as an example to us of, of, a, of a direction to move, to help us long or move with the boosters of, of love for the church in the right direction. This is really key. It is something that we we need to give more attention to is, is, is praying this way. God, please help me understand the longings of my heart. I, I, don't, I know that I shouldn't just take them for granted and follow them because my heart is untrustworthy. Uh, it can't be trusted. It should not be trusted. But I, I need to know, I need to understand what are the longings of my heart. Again, this is an example set for us by Paul. Let me give you some examples of how important this is because it comes up a lot in Paul's writings. I'm just going to list them out and you take them in and capture the importance of longing, the different ways Paul uses it, and then apply it to what we're thinking about here today with respect to the local church. What does Paul long for? In Romans 9, he has a longing for the salvation of Israel. In Philippians 1, a longing for spiritual growth of believers. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says that he has a longing for the heavenly dwelling. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he has a longing for Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians 2, a longing for the presence of believers. Romans 15, a longing for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2, a longing for unity and harmony in the church. Philippians 3, a longing for the exaltation of Christ. 2 Timothy 1, for spiritual well-being. So the spiritual well-being in particular of Timothy. And overall, he has this, this compelling longing for the spread of the gospel everywhere because it's what produces these very things. The happiness that we have in Christ comes by the gospel. The unity that we have in the body of Christ comes because of the gospel. And everything for him is about the gospel. It's all wrapped up but it's wrapped up in longing. So we need to think about this. What are you longing for? Do you long for your church? Do you long for the good things in your church to flourish? Do you long for other believers? Do you long to spend time together? Everyone in here is going to say, I hope. Yes and no. I hope you say yes. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's unavoidable to have some longing. But also, I don't hope that we say this, but we do. No. There's, there's really something left. I'm not there yet. That's what Paul's been saying. I haven't completely come to attain all of this that is laid out for me in the gospel, but I want to, and this is where it begins recognizing the very important role of the local church and the fellowship that brings to us or works in us or fuels in us hearts of love, hearts of love for one another. That's central. It's central to what it means to be a Christian. You cannot, you cannot have Christ without his church because they're inseparable. 
He, he died for her. He lives for her. And he's coming again for her. He is at work in her. This is where he's at work. So these are important questions. As we consider the second point this morning, first, here's a brief moment of application. So what should we do? Let me, let me set our bar low. I do really well with low bars first. Just start small by focusing on language. Take some time this week in your devotional time, sometime washing dishes, whatever, and just start thinking prayerfully about how you talk about other Christians. What tag do you put on me as a fellow church member or someone else? Think about how you talk. And then from there, let's, let's keep working to improve our language, to align our language with the way the Bible says we should talk about one another. And then from there, keep moving into longing as it will help fuel our longing along the way. Well, let's consider this next. How then does this happen for the Apostle Paul? Now, that's, that's a motivation question. That has to do with the motive of your heart. It has, has, has a lot to do with the, the tanks on your back. How does this kind of thing happen for Paul? What motivates him? Here it is again. If you haven't heard enough, you get some more. It keeps coming back to happiness. He is motivated, just like you are, just like I am, by happiness. It's hardwired into his, his being, into, it's in his DNA, it's in his spiritual DNA that his heart is longing to be happy. And he is finding that ultimate longing met in Christ and in the fellowship of his church. So here's the second truth. Our fellowship does not just bring us hearts of love, but it brings us what we're longing for, a full kind of joy. Language time. Okay, again, think about your language as we move on to the second one, because in the next little clause of the verse, he uses more language in reference to other Christians. And it's surprising language. He doesn't simply say brothers and sisters, which is a reference to our connection or our identity together, what it means to be linked together as Christians. He says something deep and heartfelt and invisible. He refers to them as my joy and my crown. Now, it's very unlikely, I think, that any of us have ever talked about each other like that. <laughs> Truly. Right? That's just very uncommon. There's something unique happening here that doesn't happen except by real intention but catching on to something really meaningful. And I think what we're trying to get from Paul in this series is a better grasp on what joy is to begin with. Because we've already established that. We established that week one. We don't know how to be happy. As Christians, we just don't. We don't know. We don't even know what the terms mean. They're, we're so confused about this. But here it is. Paul says something that we can learn to say, that we can learn to feel, that we can gain my joy and my crown. Paul, again, right here, is driven along by joy. What, what, what are one of the chemicals in his tanks? Joy. His tanks are full of joy. He is full 
He's full of joy. That's why he's always talking about happiness and joy. And Paul uses here when he says joy, the word kara. It's a word that we've talked about already. And it's simply a word for happiness that is a deep and abiding delight and gladness. So think about that. He refers to fellow believers, to the local church, as we would put it now, he refers to them as his delight, as his gladness. And he's talking here in this word that we've translated joy in our Bibles, most of ours, a unique kind of joy that is actually related to a few other concepts that Paul uses, uh, using some different words. Here they are. It just helps to kind of frame out context and just give a little bit more flavor to what does he mean when he talks about joy. A galeasis is another word that is connected to this. And it's a word that means exaltation. So, and we know that from the context of what Paul says, that when he thinks about joy, he's thinking about it in an exultant exulting kind of way, a joy that lifts you up, a, a joy that, um, this is silly, um, gives you wings. I, don't, I just, that just came into my mind, the Red Bull thing. I didn't make that up. It's not in here. I didn't plan on that. But that it does that. It gives you wings. That's different. That's different than what we have known as Christians recently. We're just coming back into this again. Euphrosyne. It's another word that he uses, and it means merriment, to be merry. This is, this is what he means by joy. It's connected to another word, sunkairo. It's the word to rejoice together. So Paul is bringing all of this together with this communal aspect, as he has been throughout the letter of the epistle of joy, Philippians, bringing it together in what it means to be the body of, a body of believers. The fellowship among believers in a local church is what brings us this kind of joy. Can you have other kinds of joy and happiness? Of course. Of course you can. That's what you look around. The whole world's doing that. That's what you and I are doing when we're not in our right spiritual frame of mind. We're out with some other counterfeit kind of happiness, settling for that. Um, We don't really know what we're doing. But here... He talks about something unique. But notice next, okay, put these two things together. He does not just say joy. He says crown. He's he's taking the concept higher than we think of it as joy. Why is that? Why is he talking about this in a way that we seem so unfamiliar with? One reason is we have a problem that we've created for ourselves as Christians. Because in the good intention to highlight and exalt the idea of holiness in the Christian life, we have unintentionally dumbed down our language of joy. We've almost entirely lost the idea that we're happy. We've split them from joy and happiness because we feel like it's wrong to be happy. And so we need something because we know there's a longing inside of us. So maybe we just call that joy. By the way, the Bible does not do that. The Bible does not say there's happiness and then there's joy. They're all one and the same, and they are all exultant. They're all merry. They're all rejoicing together. They are all deep and lasting. It's all one and the same, but this is our problem. 
we don't exactly know how to talk about this, and hopefully, maybe as we look at this letter together over these weeks, that we'll gain this back. You see, because what we've done is this. In this whole parsing out of the definitions, because we're sort of afraid to, to think about being happy, we feel like maybe that's not very Christian to be happy, right? Because you should be denying yourself, and you should always be kind of suffering and, and having a hard time that what we've done is actually we have not only lost happiness, but we've also lost joy because our definition of joy has landed somewhere that's pretty stoic. What we typically mean by joy is not something that's exultant and merry in our hearts. It's, it's a low groaning. It's a joy that lasts. It's a joy that takes us through times of suffering, Right? That, that's, that's what we mean. But that's not what Paul means. That's not the way that he talks about joy. How does he talk about it? Like a crown. A crowning joy. Not a groveling joy. Not a depressive joy. An exultant joy. A crown. Picture it. Picture a joyful crowning. Whatever comes to your mind. It might be a royal person somewhere coming up in line and getting the crown put on his or her head. It could be like an Olympic athlete where uh, he or she wins the race and they receive a kind of crown on their heads. It's a bright, colorful crown. It's encrusted in jewels. Think about what those jewels are. Whatever is important to the person receiving the crown that's what the jewels are. It could be the accolade of the moment. It could be um, winning the race. It could be all of the admiration that comes. It could be the feeling of honor, being royal and taking this position and being on this throne, all of that. But either way, it's a crown. Paul says other believers are his, put them together, crowning joy. Exultant, merry, uplifting, rejoicing, happiness are other believers. In his crown, the jewels, the jewels are Christians. The jewels are people. Some of them are people that he met along the way who were already believers and they had this instant unity together and his joy exploded to find out that the gospel had gone somewhere else. And some of them are people that he brought to faith in Christ. Some of them are those that he, he shared the gospel with. Either way, they are in his crown. And it's not a testament to him, right? Because he's not rejoicing in himself. He has joy in Christ who even made all of this happen. But nevertheless, this is the way he talks about the local church. My joy and my crown. It is, it is the thing that accents all of my life. It's the thing that, that is at the very top of my life. It shows off what I really care about, what I really love, what I really delight in. This is the way he talks about it. Now, let's think about this in our lives for a minute, okay? Here's how it applies. No matter who you are, your joy in the church exists or moves on like kind of like a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, the darker end, is where your relationship to local church, let's, let's say our church, your relationship to our church is one where there's very little 
or no joy. You don't feel a lot of happiness. And I'm not saying that, put, uh, that that's not a put down. It's just, it's just reality. And we all can be there. It's just duty. That's what I'm supposed to do. I have to do this. If I don't do this, other people are getting on my back about where I was, and I just need to go do it, right? If I don't do it, well, then I feel guilty, and then it, it, it you know, makes, makes the rest of my life kind of sad, so I guess I should, I guess I should do this thing. But that, that's not, you know, really joy. And then on the other end is the bright end. This is, this is what seems to be very frequently, not all the time, but very frequently Paul's end. It's the end of bright, crowning joy. It's the end of love and longing. I hope, I hope in our church that no one is on the dark end of no joy, all, all duty. And if you are, you need to speak up. You need to come to the pastors because we need to find a solution to that. Something's going tragically wrong, and that is not the way that we want our church to operate, and that's not the way that we want anyone to experience life in the body of Christ. And if that's you, you have to speak up. You will be received. You will be cared for. I understand. Sometimes I feel that way too. We understand. But you have to speak up. Or it's going to keep being miserable for you. But I also think this. I don't think anybody's on the other end. And that's just the way that it is, right? But the whole point is, we're trying to move down that direction all together. We're trying to get down, this, down to this place so that every and brother and sister, the whole fam, is sliding, whichever direction is positive, right or left, sliding to the bright end of the scale toward the crowning joy, because there isn't any anywhere else. There's, there's, no other, there's no other real happiness anywhere else. This is where Jesus has put it. He's buried it here. So how does that shift happen as a church? It happens this way. This is going to be simplistic. We have to you know, keep unpacking this together, but it's by taking a delightful, and meaningful role in the lives of other people in our church with the expressed purpose of increasing their joy in Christ, namely, number one, and as a result of that, in the church. I want to say that again because I think that's important. I don't say things that important very often. By taking a delightful and meaningful role in the lives of other people by which you are intentionally working with God's help to increase the joy of others in Christ and in his church. You become, we've talked about this, good reminder, you become joy-minded. You are happiness-minded. You, you have the proper understanding biblically of what we mean when we say happiness, and you're pursuing that in the lives of other people. You want to increase their joy, and you try to find every way you can to do that. This is how a church doing this all together slides to the crowning joy, how this can increase for all of us. So here's the question. 
The first diagnostic question, this is the point of application for the second um, piece of our time. Are you working for the increasing joy of others in Christ and in the church? Is that on your mind? Again, all right, yes, or, yes and no. Okay, all right, that's the way it is. But let's get it on our minds. Let's, let's take some steps, low bars, take slow steps, small steps. Find some ways this week that you th- of things you could do that you think would increase the joy of other people in our church a- as a happy pursuit of your own life, right? That brings all of us together, those who are making happiness and those who are getting happiness. All of us together will join together in this as we move in that direction because our fellowship does and can bring us this full joy, and that's what we want. That is best for us. That's best for the gospel. That's the most shining, beautiful picture of the gospel is that we are finding our ultimate satisfaction in Christ alone to the glory of him alone as his people. And that is when God's grace is at work and drawing drawing his people to himself, that's what he uses. That's what he, he entices them with as he's bringing people to faith. And we want to magnify that. So why do, do we need this kind of crowning joy and earlier longing love? Because it strengthens us for a good reason. This is last. Here's the last truth for this morning. Our fellowship, in addition, first one, our fellowship brings us hearts of love. Our fellowship brings us a full joy. And our fellowship strengthens us together. It's not only about being happy. It is also, which is happiness, being strong. It strengthens us. Notice what he says in the last little bit of this verse. Uh, Having said all of that, he's talking about the church in these really bright, amazing ways. Brothers and sisters, I love you. I'm longing for you. You're my joy. You're my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He uses more language. My beloved. Paul commands his readers on the heels of this incredible picture of the local church of believers together, of the way he thinks about them, to stand firm. Simple reminder, we've heard this before, why? Why does he command us to stand firm? At least two reasons, here are the two big ones. One, because we're weak. Because we are soft in, in, a, in a bad way. You know, obviously, soft heart's a good thing. But being, being soft in terms of standing firm, bad thing. That's where we get tossed back and forth by all the winds, all the politics, all the arguments, all the other things, the, the, the temptations and, and troubles and all, all that stuff just throws us around because we don't know how to stand firm. He's saying, stand firm. Number two, because we live, we live in a circle of danger world. You get outside the circle of safety into the circle of danger and you realize we live in a hard world. And that hard world is pressing into, into the circle. It's always pressing in, pressing in. And therefore, we need to be prepared to stand firm. This is fellowship, true fellowship, that has happiness at its root. 
is what ultimately makes us strong together. It is it's driving roots down into the ground. I had this really crazy thing, a sobering experience this week. I went for a run down Broad Street, and actually I went about 30 minutes late. Catherine said, hey, come out on the porch because we need to talk about the calendar. And then that delayed me about 30 minutes. As I went by there, uh, there were police everywhere. And what had happened was tragic, tragic thing. Um, an older guy, veteran, uh, was driving his car going um, east on Broad Street, had a heart attack. Slumped down in his seat, probably laid on the gas pretty hard, went back and forth uh, across the road, and then off, off to the left, right into this giant tree. You know how big the trees are down Broad Street? Right into this giant tree and completely uprooted the whole root ball, came up out of the ground with his SUV. He passed away, tragic. As I ran by there, obviously, one of the things I was thinking was, wow, if I had been there 30 minutes earlier, that's right, the sidewalk I run down, I'm not that agile to handle that, and it could have been much worse. But I also, after I came back the other way, I was looking at the tree more, and I thought, wow, look at the way the force of that car didn't just snap off the, the trunk, it actually pulled all the roots out. And it was just a, like one of those simple reminders where it struck me about there's something about this picture that is important to our church because it, it pictures both the force of the world that's coming against the church, that's always the way that it is, and what is it that makes us stand firm? It's not what's above ground. It's what's below ground. The question is how strong are those roots? That's what it means to stand firm. It doesn't mean be big and tall. Be, be big and tall and, and, and skinny. That's, that doesn't help you stand firm. It just the trunk gets snapped over. It's about deep roots. That's how trees don't fall over. That's how they aren't blown over by the winds. Therefore, we should think in these terms spiritually as well. How do you stand firm? He's telling us, you have to have deep roots in the body of Christ. You have to have roots that are roots of love for one another. You have to have roots that are, that are grounded in this fundamental reality of the Christian life, which is joy, crowning joy. And the deeper those roots are, the more that we will stand firm. You cannot, and I, when I say you, I mean I, we. We cannot stand firm any other way. There's no other way. This is the way that he has made it to work. So how? Quick recap. Here's your recap. By love for the church, increasing love for the church, there's a focal point for us. Increasing our love for the church is key. That's one key of this trio of deep roots that make us stand firm. Two, through a longing that moves us toward the church, toward the shuttle, not farther out into space, floating. And number three, with a joy over our church, a joy in your heart about our church. Those are the three. Now listen to this. To the degree that these three things are yours, you will stand firm in the Lord. To the degree that these three things, your love for the church, 
your longing movement toward the church and the joy that you have about your church, to that degree, you will stand firm. And the opposite, the inverse is true. To the degree that these three are not yours, you will not stand firm in the Lord. You will be like, worst case scenario, Bruce McCandless. Your boosters won't work and you will float off. And you will not stand firm. That's what floating off means, not standing firm. Mark that down. This is a charge. It's a challenge. Uh, It's an offer to you. Anyone who is floating, anyone who is momentarily untethered, it's a challenge to you. It's also, it's also very much a warning to you. So take this seriously. Heed this challenge. Heed the warning. Because in it is immense, immense, real happiness and joy, the kind the Bible talks about. And apart from it is just foolishness, loss, drifting, and certainly not standing firm. So last point of application, we need to work by grace to grow in this trio, love and longing and joy. If you need to put simply, and you have something to write on, just write those three things down and focus prayerfully on them this week. Love, longing, joy. God, give me more love for my church. Please fuel in me a longing that boosts me into my church, toward my church, toward these people. And God, please maximize my joy in you among your people. This all begins by coming to faith in Christ. This is how you get tethered to the church to begin with. This is how you get into the the shuttle. Kind of overworking that analogy a little, but into the shuttle by repentance and faith. As God draws you to himself, it's a beautiful thing. And if that's you, you should come to faith in Christ right now. You should cry out to him. You should ask him to save you. You should commit your life to him. And you should let us know so that we can all walk together. We're all struggling along together in this life uh, as Christians. And for the rest of us, this is what we've got to focus on. We've got to give these our, our attention, really serious attention. So write them down. Take them home. Don't leave them here. Open them up this week and pray, 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 think, talk about them in community group. And let's move forward because this is the joyful power of Christian fellowship. Let me invite you to stand as you're able as we pray and we prepare to sing once again at the end of our service this morning. Our Father, as we are uh, are together now and um, have our attention on this text, we pray that you would that you would burn it into our minds or hearts some way, some part that's most important to us. And we pray that you would help us, even as we sing, to engage with these truths. And uh, we pray that they would do their good work in us. Uh, You are sovereign. You are wise. You are good. You are happy. And we pray that you would work all four of them uh, in our lives and, and increase them. In us, help us to know you and to trust in you. Help us to, um, to appreciate and value and enjoy your, your goodness and your wisdom. And we pray that you would magnify and increase our joy uh, to, the, 
to the glory of your name and to the delight of our church. And we just pray that you'd help us in this. We need it so badly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.